1: can't believe I'm saying this, but this is the final episode of 2023. We're in the last few days of the year, which feels like that weird buffer time when you're sort of full of cheese and unsure what day it is before the hustle and bustle of the new year. So during these quiet days, I wanted to take a moment to really reflect on the highlights from the last 12 months. So Guy, in a sentence, what did 2023 mean to the world of gardening? What were the big headlines from the year?
2: Well, this is going to be a really big sentence, Gareth, because I'm going to start off with the weather. Weather is everything in gardening. (laughs) From a lovely, warm, dry February through wet March, then cold but not frosty April and May, blazing heat in June wet in july and august then more heat in september and since the end of september here in the southeast at any rate it's rained and rained and rained we've had over 12 inches of rain since the end of september that's equivalent to half our expected annual rainfall but thinking more widely we're focusing on peat free on plastics and reducing their use in the garden and with the urban garden show coming up next year we're deeply thinking about urban gardening what it means and what it involves We'll be
1: exploring some of these further throughout the programme. First up, we're chatting about a few
2: podcast highlights. Then we'll be exploring some of the gardening trends and key horticultural moments from the year with people across the RHS.
1: And finally, we're bringing in the new year with a story that waxes lyrical about gardening in late December. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth
2: Richards. And me, Guy Barter.
1: One of the big trends for 2023 has been resilient gardening. The dry summer we had in 2022 and then last year's harsh winter really brought home the importance of growing hardy, adaptable plants. And we've chatted about this a lot on the podcast this year. We had garden designer Tom Massey on to discuss his lovely book RHS Resilient Garden. We explored the ways in which plants wizely survived last year's intense frosts and which didn't, some of them as well. And we got a masterclass from advisor Esther Wolf, on climate mitigation and adaptation strategies. But one thing that I think ties into this idea of resilience is that of rewilding, restoring the land, its natural way of being, and allowing natural processes to kind of take the fore. And this can help increase biodiversity, repair damaged ecosystems, and crucially, help bolster resilience. And in that vein, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing writer and rewilding expert Isabella Tree this summer for the podcast. So let's take a short listen to what she said.
3: Contrary to what most people think, a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, I'm rewilding my garden because I'm not doing anything. It's not about just letting go of your garden, but just thinking like a herbivore, thinking that when you're pruning your roses, what are you doing actually? You're being a herbivore and the rose is responding by bifurcating and throwing out more thorns and throwing out more flowers because it thinks it's being eaten and this is its last chance to bloom. And interestingly, there's a study that if you actually anointed the bits of the rose bush where you've cut with your secateurs with herbivore saliva, The enzymes in the saliva send a message, a chemical message, to the plant and you'll get even more roses. So it's really thinking in large landscape-scale processes and applying them to your garden. So, for example, a a wildlife-friendly gardener might create a pond, but that might be quite a conventional pond. It might be ornamental, sort of round shape with a similar depth the whole way around. You might be mowing right up to the edges. It would be great for some wildlife, and it's obviously a positive step to take. But if you're thinking with a rewilding mindset, you'd create a pond which has different depths, a very deep part, some shallow bits that might even dry out completely in the summer. You would think like a beaver, and you'd chuck in some dead wood because that would rot down, create some algae that could feed a kind of nursery for small fry fish and aquatic insects. Then you might think like a water buffalo, so you would think about trampling around the margins where you could create little pockets and niches where amphibians, frogs, toads could spawn, where you can create little hollows for receiving the aquatic plants that come in perhaps on the feet of, of aquatic birds that would be visiting your pond. So it's really thinking about processes and how you can make the greatest kind of diversity of habitat within a small space that can benefit the most number of species.
1: So this was definitely a highlight for me. And I love this idea of looking to nature for inspiration. What Isabella was saying about looking at the different depths in your pond and kind of creating all these little microhabitats, which is what, for example, a trampling buffalo might do to the ed- edges of your pond. So yeah, looking to nature for inspiration, but not being a, a slave to a highfalutin concept. But I know that this this is quite a controversial approach in some ways. Guy, what can you tell me about the controversy around rewilding?
2: Yes, this is really interesting, Gareth. We've had quite an internal discussion with the people in the Royal Horticultural Society. And to us, rewilding is more a landscape sort of thing. So you take a landscape and you either restore it to its primeval sort of state, as people are introducing bison into woodland in Kent, for example, and beavers into streams in Devon. Now that isn't a great thing for a garden, and though you can do all sorts of things with your lawnmower to mimic a buffalo or a, uh-huh. a bison or a cow, it's not quite the same. So we feel that wildlife-friendly gardening is a more appropriate term than rewilding. That's what we think rewilding is in the context of small spaces and gardens.
1: Absolutely, uh, you know, and whatever we call it, it seems like we're finding an increased focus on building these diverse, resilient plots. So Guy, what are the three plants you might recommend gardeners grow this coming year to help withstand our changing climate?
2: Three plants is a pretty tall order, but I've boiled it down to three that are on my mind at the moment. One is lamb's ears, Status byzantina. RHS research has shown that this plant is not only very drought resistant and reflects heat and light back into the atmosphere from its silvery leaves, but the hairiness of its leaves gathers pollution and purifies the air in the vicinity. The other Mm. one is Cotinus cocaigurea. It's a large shrub or a small tree, but if you've got a small garden, you can cut it back to near ground level every year when you get um, lots of big leaves and not many flowers, or you can let it grow into a small tree that's just right for a small garden, covered in flowers of an inconspicuous nature, which are still loved by insects. And finally, I'm going to go for Common Old Garden pyrocampha. Pyracantha is very, very tough, it's covered in berries, has lots of insect-friendly flowers. It'll even grow in light shade, and it's a great plant for difficult situations that requires very little upkeep. So that's my free. Do you have any, Gareth? Well,
1: do you know what I was going to pick out Stachys byzantina as well, the lamb's ear. I remember reading about that research, and it was one of those one of those plants that was brilliant for hot, dry conditions. But crucially, it does also tolerate a bit of winter wet, which is unusual for something so silver leaved, and also one that I think is perhaps a tree for the future is Liquid Amber. Now they are very resilient to heat and drought, and they will tolerate a bit of flooding as well. There's one called slender silhouette, which is almost like um, you know those Italian cypresses or Lombardy poplars—a really narrow columnar tree, but they don't get too enormous. So you could you could fit that into even a pretty small garden. But anyway, Guy, back to you. What is one of your podcast highlights from the year?
2: One of my highlights, as ever, is all the grow your own content we've had on the podcast this year. We visited a nursery with dozens of potato varieties, explored what you can grow from supermarket produce, delved into the history of allotments, chatted about produce grown here, from elsewhere, and much, much more. But a recent focus has been on year-round grow your own and what you can get out of growing veg in these dark, cold months. Sheila Dask, a garden manager at RHS Garden Wisley, has really championed this, so here's a short clip on what she has to say about that.
1: So what would you say to people who kind of want to put the veg patch to bed once the last tomatoes have been picked and say "Oh, it's not really worth it, it's too cold?
4: Yeah, it's uh, kind of missing a whole range of different crops, actually, Mm. Gareth, isn't it? I mean, I've really enjoyed experimenting with the stuff I've grown over the winter. I grew something last year, which is a a Chinese funny knobbly stemmed brassica, actually called Wa-wa-ga-choy, and that was really tasty, and it was something I'd not tried before. So I think there are opportunities of trying new things, and that obviously comes back to helping with the diversity Mm. of our diets. But really important as well is just keeping growing in ground over the winter protects the soil. So um, thinking about, yes, we can mulch our beds with bulky compost, but potentially we could just grow plants in them and keep that plant growth, keeping the soil healthy, providing that cover. But hey, then we've also got something to eat. It feels like a win-win. It's also about kind of having fresh produce, I think as we've Mm. already said that, being able to just pick something and eat it Growth slows over the winter, Mm. so we're not going to pretend we're going to get the same kinds of harvest as we do in the summer. So it always, for me, it does come in tandem a little bit with saving some of the things that I've grown in the summer. So things like my potatoes that I grew in the summer or my squashes are there as my winter starchy Mm. carbohydrates, which is all good. I might have kept some beetroot. I might have even frozen those. I certainly put those in the fridge. And then, and imagine that a plate with beetroot, squash kales, other winter veg, you know, your purple broccoli, we talk about eating the rainbow. So people worry, you know, if I can't have tomatoes and peppers in the winter, where's my rainbow? But actually with a combination of growing some of those things in the summer, plus what you can top up with and grow in the winter, and there are winter lettuces and other winter salads Mm -hmm. too. So it feels like it's possibly more achievable than people might think.
1: Lovely, that was a fun interview to record. And speaking of winter veg, Guy, I know we've done several stories on your own allotment this past year. So now in December, what's it looking like?
2: Well, after a wet summer, things are looking pretty good. Here in the Southeast, wet summers are much the best for growing vegetables. So at the moment, I am uh, gathering and feasting on Brussels sprouts, cabbages, both red and white and green, autumn cauliflowers, there's just one left, loads and loads of leeks, Winter salads, carrots and parsnips, and in my shed are loads of squash, onions and potatoes. So my allotment has been highly productive this year. And as Sheila says, it's a shame to leave land bare over the winter and not desirable, environmentally speaking. So anything that's not cropped is covered in cover crops, mostly Italian ryegrass, but also various kinds of clover that improve the soil Mm. over winter and they support biodiversity as well.
1: Lovely. Lovely. And now on for a final podcast highlight. I wanted to chat about all of the urban gardening content. Seems to be a real winner right now. One of my absolute favourite stories and one that's quite advice-oriented was Tony Woods' masterclass on front garden design. Here's a clip.
5: Front gardens provide the opportunity to say, I care about living here. I care about this community. I care about the environment. And it spreads. People will see, actually, those guys that moved in over the road, they've made a really nice, simple planting scheme in their garden, you know, if it's a row of lavender or whatever it is. And when people see one person doing that, it spreads down the street. And, you know, people really get on board with that. And, it you know, it can change crime rates. It can, you know, you can steer a local authority in the in the direction of what types of recycling bins you have in different towns lots of different things have happened. So, front gardens are, they're almost like a a health check for a community. It's saying, these people are happy, they love living here, or perhaps, you know, this isn't the most tranquil environment, but wow, they try and they have a pride in their community and they want to make it greener and safer and cleaner.
1: I love this idea of front gardens showing that you care about the place that you live in. I think that's so, it's so true. You see a good front garden and suddenly it does change the way you look at a street.
2: Yes, it's certainly true that where you see front gardens being improved, it does tend to spread down the street and it does indicate that it's communities that are working together. But I have to say that here in the suburbs, the trend has been in the opposite direction for many years with paved gardens Mm. becoming more and more common. We have to be practical. People have to have somewhere to park and unload the car, particularly if they have children. But we've helped out, I think, by coming up with ideas for introducing greenery, even into paved gardens. I noticed that our advisory team have come up with the idea of lifting a paver. So if you have lots of slabs in the front garden, removing ones in inconspicuous places that won't interfere with use of the garden for parking the car and unloading is a good way to introduce some plants. And then there's corners where the car doesn't go. It's often possible to put in a shrub or a tree there and against the house, possibly a climber. Mm. Yeah, because I think that's an important
1: point. You know, you're not going to drive right into the corner of a garden. You're not going to walk there. So, yeah, just lift one paving slab and put in a, a small tree like a crabapple or an amelanchier or something. It will stop things just being quite so bare. And even even one shrub is going to have a positive impact for wildlife. So that concludes our roundup of the year's highlights. But to get a real sense of trends and some general RHS highlights from 2023, we went around and spoke with a few colleagues who've got their fingers on the pulse.
2: First up with her high points of the year is Claire Matteson, the Director General of the Royal Horticultural Society. So this has
6: been my first full year as Director General, so a real kind of chance to kind of get a sense of where we are, what we've been up to, and there's just been some amazing things. Uh, I guess a real highlight for me, I mean, this was my first kind of RHS Chelsea Flower Show, uh, which was at the same time exciting and terrifying, but it was very exciting. The first time we had um, a children's picnic at the Chelsea Flower Show. So we invited 100 school children from schools across London, 10 children per school, They had a chance to look around, do some activities in the various different gardens. But then what was really, really exciting was fairly late on, uh, the Princess of Wales, she decided that she would be able to come, which was really fantastic. And just seeing their faces, and then she sat down when they were having the picnic with them. And at first they were all a bit terrified, and then... She asked them questions and they were relaxed and they were putting up their hands wanting to answer her questions. And it was just really, really special, really lovely moment. And yeah, hopefully something that they'll really remember for the rest of their lives as well. I mean, one thing I'm very, very proud of that we opened this year was at RHS Wisley. We opened the new Clear Lake. So it's a new, sort of peaceful, reflective area, but, but really, really important in terms of sustainability, because it enables us, it's a, big wa- it's a big water butt basically, but a really beautiful one, and it enables us to reach towards our water neutral goals as part of our sustainability plan. So a really important point for that, and it will attract biodiversity in We've had some lovely things going on across other gardens, so it was really wonderful to be at RHS Bridgewater. We had the opening of the sort of first part of the Chinese streamside garden, and that was the music pavilion. It's just stunningly beautiful. All of the pieces were sort of made in China by Chinese specialists or sort of craftspeople, and then it was shipped over to the UK and then they came and then they constructed it on site. and it's it's quite exquisite. It's really lovely and then we will have the subsequent Scholars Garden is now sort of in development for for the next year. So, yes, so many different things across so many different areas of of what we've been up to. It's, It's just been a whirlwind. Show season
7: kicked off in the stunning surroundings of the Malvern Hills.
1: That's Jenny LaVille, our digital editor for Flower Show content, here with a rundown of all our 2023 shows.
7: And the show gardens there really lived up to their beautiful surroundings. None more so than Jamie Langlands Garden for the Wildlife Trusts. Gold, best in show, best construction, people's choice of the lad really swept the board, and understandably so. His design centred on the themes of wildlife sustainability and reclaiming weeds, themes that Chelsea really picked up and ran with. At Chelsea this year, we were treated to some incredible classic gardens that look so mature and organic, you'd swear they'd always been there. Temples, mountains and gorillas' nests should look out of place in West London, but they didn't. Everyone was talking about the incredible Nurture Landscapes Garden by Sarah Price. What that lass can do with a bearded iris is nothing short of remarkable. But if I had to sum up Chelsea Gardens in three words, they would probably be weeds, rubble and mushrooms. Cleves West Centrepoint Garden, delighted and outraged by having dandelions and herb Robert growing through rubble and reclaimed materials. Away from the gardens at Chelsea, there was the first wedding, congratulations, Menage and Clive, the first visit from our new king, the first children's picnic, it was all go. Then we had a breather in June before diving into Hampton Court. Hampton Court Palace was buzzing, literally. The place was alive with all the insects drawn by the wildlife friendly gardens. Joe Thompson's Wildlife Garden was really successful in showing how rewilding can work in practice as a cultivated and curated space. The Wildlife Trust had a garden in the Get Started Garden category by Zoe Claymore which showed how to make a wildlife haven in a small urban space even if you don't own it. With a third of the households in the UK renting, this is the future of horticulture. But if we're talking lasting impact, we have to mention Tom Massey's RHS Resilience Garden. He'll be back at Chelsea this year in 2024 with the Water Aid Garden, but also back at Hampton, mentoring the resilient pocket planting category. The sensory pockets this year were a joy. I can't wait to see what creations the new designers do with the resilience theme. I sometimes think where Chelsea introduces a theme, Hampton explores it and then Tatton shows you how to do it at home. So there were lots of practical take-home ideas for gardens of all shapes and sizes. There was so much to see. Long borders, pocket borders, installation, school barrels, feature gardens, show gardens. But one of the most popular areas of the showground was the terrace gardens, with the RHS Ginnell Gardens sandwiched in between. Colin McGuire's backyard garden was the standout design of the small spaces. It was a TARDIS of a garden, fitting in crops, flowers, a water feature, even a seating and cooking area, and it was gorgeous. It puts my backyard to shame. Honestly, I slightly hate him for it. And what a triumph Tatten was for Nathan Webster, awarded Young Designer of the Year. His garden off the grid, recreated a forest clearing so perfectly that you honestly felt like you were in an ancient woodland, not just off the M56 from Manchester. I know there will be loads of opportunities to see forest garden designs at the 2024 RHS shows. I wonder if a fair few weren't actually inspired by Nathan and I'm looking forward to seeing how they do. In fact, Nathan will be kicking things off himself as he tries his hand at an urban forest garden at the RHS Urban Show in Manchester. It's going to be a great year. I'll see you there.
8: My name is Tom Howard. I am the head of editorial at the RHS and editor of The Garden magazine, which is the magazine that we make every month for RHS members. I'm sitting here at home and I've got 12 issues of the magazine from 2023 all on the floor in front of me. And I'm looking at the covers, and it is really fascinating looking at how things have unfolded across the year and all the trends that have emerged as we've been making the magazines. And for me, the story that these covers tell is about us as an editorial team and us as the RHS and also us just generally as gardeners in this country sort of embracing and talking about a kinder and more inclusive way of gardening that isn't just done to please the person doing the gardening. It's gardening that's done to help wildlife or it's gardening that's done to help the planet or it's gardening to help people who are gardening in cities as so many of us do now, um, including me. And it's gardening to help people who don't have a garden and can only grow houseplants indoors. But I think my favorite issue of all this year was the August issue, which was about gardening with children. And this was a remarkable experience to put together. We ran a competition on the cover to get kids to design the cover. And some of the drawings they sent in were absolutely amazing. And it just makes you realize that kids see the world in a, in a very different way to adults. They see the magic and the drama and, and the joy in things that maybe adults no longer can. And I think that issue also, it led to what I would say was the most kind of meaningful moment of the year for, for the Garda magazine, where one of the three winners of the cover competition who was a seven-year-old girl called Ren Tapley. She drew the cover. That looks like a hand slowly descending into the magical world of soil. And after the issue came out, we got a letter from her mum that was, it was an email from her mum, that was titled simply, thank you. And it went like so. Such a delighted little girl running around our house yesterday, bowled over by all the wonderful gifts in her prize parcel and then straight into the art supplies to make a picture. A huge thank you to the garden and the RHS. The biggest gift of all is the boost to her confidence and enjoying that moment of feeling seen. Her love of gardening and art recognized and rewarded. These things have lasting impacts on shaping lives and interests. So thank you. Oh, tearing up just just reading out like that. But um, ultimately that is what It's all about, isn't it, getting that sort of emotional reaction from people. So, yeah, it's been an excellent year for The Garden magazine and there is more to come
2: next year. You may recognise this voice. It's Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions and a frequent presenter of the podcast.
9: 2023 was the culmination of oh must be at least four years worth of work to open the old laboratory at Wisley and the the ground floor of that is now an exhibition about the history of the garden showcasing the collections that we managed to uncover over four years of scouring attics and sheds and you know under people's desks in offices all around Wisley to tell the story of the amazing garden and things that happened there so the unveiling of that was a real high point and that has also given us a temporary exhibition gallery, which again has been a a really exciting development. It's the first time we've been able to bring out some of the uh, more fragile treasures from the library's collection and showcase them to thousands of visitors which has been a real thrill. So we've got into the swing of doing exhibitions, which is really exciting and full on. And we've also launched our RHS Digital Collections online platform where you can download for free beautiful images um, of Thousands and thousands of items from the library and the herbarium and search and, and, yeah, lose hours in the vaults of the collection on, on the screen of your laptop or tablet or device of your choice. So, yeah, really, really busy year. And then finally, I think if I'm allowed a third highlight of a highlight year... We had a little award ceremony, we won an award which was the Archives and Records Association Volunteer Project of the Year Award and it's lovely to be able to highlight the work of our volunteers and we had a fantastic project called the Digital Dig which was for remote volunteers, people who didn't have to come to the library to volunteer for us, who worked on our nursery catalogue collection and covering that amazing collection and putting them on a digital map, an interactive map, and people devoted, I think it's over 2,000 hours of volunteering towards that, and we won an award, which was lovely.
1: Wow, what a year. I don't know about you, Guy, but uh, one of the highlights that really resonated with me was Jenny when she talked about the wildlife garden at Hampton. And I just remember the wildlife garden by Joe Thompson being absolutely inundated with small skipper butterflies. And it was just just an amazing amazing sight, you know, build it and they will come. This beautiful wildlife garden covered in these tiny little butterflies with these amazing deep orange wings that just, that just sort of shone in this summer sun.
2: It was a real highlight for me. How about you? I particularly enjoyed the Director General's roundup. People may not realize, but uh, we go to immense trouble in the RHS to always have new content in gardens and indeed flower shows. And this is to keep people coming and provide value for money for our members. But it requires an awful lot of planning and an awful lot of fundraising. And it goes on and on year after year, which is very good for us, isn't it, Gareth? Because it gives us something to podcast about.
1: <laughs> well, absolutely. And finally, we wanted to end the year on a poetic note about what you can gain from going out into the garden in this weird limbo period between Christmas and New Year.
2: So, closing out the show with her reflections on three things that are representative of a December garden is horticultural advisor Jenny Bowden.
10: As we reflect back on 2023 and take stock of the year... I wanted just to take a moment to focus in on three things from the garden that are emblematic of this quiet time of year for me. They're things that are informed by the past, but come into the present and also look to the future. In my mind, they connect the year together, helping bring life cycles and change into sharp focus. In a gap between all this rain we've had, I was cutting back all the yellowing asparagus, chopping back all the old canes and uh, to finish the job I turned out all the old compost that I'd made, all from the year's garden clippings, all those peelings made in the preparation of last year's meals, cooking for family and friends and now we have a cosy layer of dark crumbly goodness now covering the asparagus. I love looking at it and it feels like a new start and it feels quite reflective at the same time. With one compost bin emptied, a new one begins. Starting with adding in the chewier, more fibrous bits that didn't make it into the compost this year, they'll be perfect for next. And so the past prepares the garden for the future. At this time of year also, I've been thinking shade. It seems the UK has been swathed in pewter grey skies for weeks and weeks. But when the sun does come out, check out the shadows in your garden. You tend to take more notice in the summer as to where the shade is because it's so much more appreciated and you can sort of dive for it in the the hot parts of the summer that we've had. But shade in winter is important too because it could indicate where frost may gather and also the dampness and that helps inform what you might plant there in the future. It may be sunny in the summer, but the plants do have to get through the winter in order to flourish later on in the year. Perhaps you have a new house. In this case, it can be a really good idea just to wait a year before you make any big changes, before you make those borders and start your brand new garden. Just see where the shadows fall, and how they shift through winter and onwards into spring and summer. Where we really see the past brightening up the present is with this year's holly. It is absolutely loaded with berries this year. And that old traditional tale that goes, if there's a heavy crop of holly berries, it's going to be a really cold winter. Well, it's not entirely true. It may be a very cold winter, but it's not because the holly has foreseen this. What's really happening is the holly is celebrating its delight at a long hot summer in 2022, the perfect spring weather this year for flowering. There were no late frosts and the weather was perfect for bees and other pollinators to do their work. There are so many berries that the birds just can't keep up. And there are still laden branches for me to cut and put in the wreath for my front door. A very happy new year.
1: Thanks there to Jenny Bowden. So guys, speaking of the garden at this time of year, what do you
2: get up to in this quiet time? The first thing is mending things. And I've had to rebuild a fence this autumn in the rain. That's been pretty strenuous, <laughs> I can tell you. And I'm also using up the spare timber from the fence to make nest boxes and a new path. And then I also like to accumulate fertility. So I've been making compost, raking up leaves, and ordering manure so that I can have lots of fertility for next year, and, and also planning. And um, lots of people tell me how they garden sort of off-the-cuff sort of thing. I couldn't possibly do that. I've got a very strict plan, which is planned out in advance, the seeds bought, the rotation planned, sequences set up, and it'll all go like clockwork, if the weather plays ball, of oh. course.
1: Oh, you'd, you'd better not look too closely at my seed tin, then. You'd be horrified. <laughs> well,
2: that's all we have for you this week. So for me, Gareth Richards... And me, Guy Barter... Happy New Year.
0: I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming... With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better.